and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Jolt's pressure fading out in the background. As always, if you want to support this podcast, you can do so by donating on consumerchoicecenter.org slash donate in fiat or cryptocurrencies. It's the episode of November 3rd, 2022. Uh, we're talking about great things today. Um, Jan Lostowski, uh brings up the Uber files and we'll talk about exactly the, implica- the implications of the, the recent hearing in the European Parliament and, uh, and the ride-sharing economy as a whole. Then also we have Fabio Fernandez from the Consumer Choice Center talking to us about uh, the recent elections, presidential elections in Brazil. So we dissect what exactly is going on there. Uh, also aviation, uh, the European Commission wants to extend the ETS, the European Emissions Trading System, uh, to flights that go uh, intercontinental. And then lastly, we also have, without a car, work and facilities are often difficult to reach. That is the conclusion of a new study in the Netherlands. And I think it's a quite interesting uh, thing. So let's get started right away, actually, with this topic. So the Dutch government uh, produced a study in which they analyzed how exactly people get around. But also, what is the most efficient way of getting around? And what is quite interesting here is that they concluded the car remains, even during congestion, the most efficient way of getting around the country. 30% of the elderly cannot reach any hospital or outpatient clinic within half an hour if they do not drive a car, and 12% cannot even reach them within 45 minutes. This concerns elderly people who live in the outskirts of cities, in villages, and in rural areas. Young people, so says the study, also experience long travel times on their way to school. 10% of all young people are on their way to a VBO, VMBO school, that's uh, the school system in the Netherlands, for more than 30 minutes by bike. And 17% of all young people cannot reach any HAVO and VWO, another school system, uh, location within 30 minutes by bike. With public transport, accessibility is even lower, and this has declined further in recent years, especially in neighborhoods outside the cities. Lack of accessibility also severely hinders school choice. So that is quite interesting. Um, overall, that the, the, the result is here that even at the time when, you know, I know the Netherlands a bit, and driving around the Netherlands is difficult, there's a lot of traffic, um, and it almost feels like the traffic rules are made to disincentivize you from driving in the first place. Plus, on top of that, uh, many of the older diesel cars are not even allowed to enter some of the cities anymore, unless you want to pay a big fine. Uh, political choices are partly to blame, say the researcher, quote, one of the main objectives in transport policy is to facilitate people's access to jobs, amenities and social contacts. But in practice, transportation policy is often limited to fighting congestion and facilitating traffic flows. Uh, end of quote, said Jeroen Bastiansen, a transport policy researcher. Um, so uh, I, I, find it, I find it quite quite fascinating because we're already at the point where governments do implement punitive rules on you driving a car. There's high taxation, there's uh, congestion charges, there's extra emission charges. But at the same time, the government is not proposing or facilitating the solutions for you to have alternative methods of transport. It's almost like in COVID, just don't go anywhere. And I think that's very punitively and vindictively uh, charging consumers when the alternatives are simply not there. On top of that, and, I, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly if the study did this, but the availability of a car is also quite important depending on you needing to transport things. Um, yeah, sure, if you live in a big city, uh, you can pick up groceries every day after work from the local grocery store. At least they're open every day in the Netherlands. Um, but 
if you need to transport bigger things, maybe you're moving, um, or maybe you just try and do the groceries, all the groceries for the week at once, then you will need a car. And um, and if you scrap that for uh, environmental purposes or because it simply became too expensive for you, then um, that doesn't quite work uh, because how are you going to transport all of that? So um, car sharing, of course, needs to be more available. We need to have a better facilitation and market entry for private operators to get into the market. The good news is... Uh, it's one of the DB uh, Deutsche Bahn companies now also entering uh, the market of night trains in the Netherlands. All of that is helping reducing drunk, drunk driving, uh, uh, making it more affordable for people to use and give, get from A to B because ultimately that should be the goal. More people uh, getting from A to B if they so choose to do that. Um, choices are obviously important. And also that facilitates opportunities for people because uh, the more you are able to travel, the more you are able to uh, get a bigger network, uh, get a, be aware of different opportunities and prices and services. Uh, that is essentially what makes us uh, uh, outperform uh, our ancestors because we have that availability to travel and on top of that, uh, get an open mind because we understand different cultures and, 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 and we are able to, to get around. So... Um, I think the ultimate conclusion of this study should be that uh, there's still a lot of work to do for the government before it can actually punitively tax uh, cars uh, to the extent it does. Now let's move to uh, my colleague Fabio Fernandes, who is from Brazil and uh, had some things to say about the presidential election in Brazil. All right, we are here now with our uh, trusted colleague Fabio Fernandes, who is from Brazil. So I wanted to quiz him about the uh, the Brazilian presidential election. Um, and uh, we don't have too much time, Fabio, but I wanted to get something right off the bat. And I wanted to get your reaction on this, because before we talk about sort of the implications of the results... What I found interesting is that in the official communication and even in newspaper articles, they kept saying it, they were free and fair elections, as if there was sort of an assumption that they wouldn't be free or fair, which is sort of a, an odd assumption, as if Brazil was not developed enough of a country to hold fair elections. Uh, do you have any, any, any thoughts on this? Yes, yeah, so that uh, points out one of the issues in Brazil election process, which is the um, uh, electronic voting. So Brazil is one of the only countries in the world that has electronic voting system, and it's the only type of system available in Brazil. Uh, so, uh, of course, many countries are still not using electronic voting, such as the United States is not widespread. Also here in Italy, we don't use uh, electronic voting because there are some concerns in terms of how the election uh, can be secure. And that's something that not only Bolsonaro talked a, a lot about, but uh, there were some investigations and some uh, private companies that were hired to make sure that the election was safe. And they raised some concerns regarding uh, the election process and how they can be verified. So basically, it's it's very hard in the electronic system to verify all the voter the voters and, the, and make sure that there was no duplicity or anything like that. So uh, due to the way that Bolsonaro has been treated in the past year or so by by the media and also by the Supreme Court, and we can get into the more details here, uh, he felt that the election might not have been um, uh, secure, which is, of course, absurd because the elections in Brazil has been electronic since the 90s. It's one of the most secure elections in the world. Uh, of course, there are concerns regarding the whole process and there are ways to improve it, but uh, he was trying to uh, 
raise awareness about this in a way that was not very uh, well received by the voters and by uh, the media and and everybody in Brazil because uh, he, he was questioning uh, the the election process uh, and people thought that may, that might be a way for him to stay in power and and even if he lost he wouldn't uh, concede uh, the, the the victory to the to the other party. Right, he did concede. Uh, I think what was it yesterday or something. The the, the Brazilian election process is also very quick. I find for that large of a country, very efficient. I have to say. Um, in in any case, let's get to sort of the 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 what you analyzed was sort of the the reasons that led to the significant, I guess, political change. Uh, the the return return of of Lula into the political sphere as president, um, and uh, Bolsonaro, who was, I guess, from a European perspective, quite a um, um, uh, quite a more radical choice back when that happened. So sort of explain what led here and also what you sort of analyze are the implications of this vote. Yeah, so Bolsonaro conceded after a few days, so not immediately after the, the results of the election. And he ended any speculations that he would resist or stay in power. So the new government will start the transition process in the next weeks, which is good. It's good for the democratic process in Brazil. But it's a great loss for for the right-wing movement, for Bolsonaro particularly, and the libertarian movement, which gained a lot of space during the Bolsonaro government in the past years. So Lula da Silva is a member of the Workers' Party in Brazil, and he won the election uh, last Sunday with a tiny margin, bill, less than 2 million votes, which is about 1.6% more votes than Bolsonaro. And he will replace Bolsonaro starting January 2023. And... Uh, this is going to be Lula da Silva's third term as president after being convicted in two instances with overwhelming evidence of money laundering and corruption. So a question that I get a lot is how was he able to run to office if he was convicted in two um, in two layers of the, the legal process. Well, Lula, he was freed and cleared to run by the Supreme Court, which ruled that Lula was not innocent, but that the, the, the judgment and all the, the process happened in the wrong jurisdiction, jurisdiction, making the legal process against him null and void. So that was the decision of the Supreme Court. And it's important for us to say as well that the election in Brazil is mandatory. So voting in Brazil is not a right, but an obligation. Missing a couple of elections will get your passport confiscated and other legal inconveniences. So it was expected that some kind of tension would rise and this election created a great division in Brazil society. Friends and families were divided. It was one of the worst elections, in my opinion, in the past years. And that's something that Lula will have to deal very carefully. He was also need to deal with inflation. Uh, he has plans to increase government spending, ending a cycle of economic surplus that Bolsonaro was able to create. He will also re-establish partnership with South American countries such as Bolivia, Argentina, Venezuela, and he has also plans to unify or create a unified currency in South America that will be backed by the Brazilian central bank. So there's a lot to come in the next years. He has a lot of plans. He wants to pick up where he, he stopped, where he, he ended. Uh, but as you said, there was a lot of complications during this election. One of that was um, the, the Supreme Court. So the, the, the Brazilian Supreme Federal Court and the Supreme Electoral Court, the two powerful courts have a, assumed kind of 
have a widespread and arbitrary power to censor and even to eliminate a wide range of social media posts, campaign materials, and opinion pieces, especially in the weeks leading to the election day. So that was also one of the reasons that Bolsonaro was very worried about the election integrity, and he was using that as an argument maybe to persuade some of the voters. Fair enough. Quite a controversial uh, uh, election. And also what, I, what I've been seeing online is sort of the in front of embassies in Europe, even people dancing and music. I mean, it seems that Brazilians are taking their democracy with a lot of passion. Uh, Fabio, I had one more thing I wanted to just briefly qu quiz you about because, you know, we are a European. We take the European uh, aspects into into consideration here. And some European leaders are excited because it this I mean, I, I mean, maybe uh, some of the listeners are not particularly happy about uh, this election result. But uh, from a European perspective, there could be a good free trade uh, result of this election. European leaders like, uh, presumably like Lula, a tad bit more. And the Mercosur uh, free trade deal, which has sort of been on ice since 2019, might be back on track if the EU and Brazil uh, uh, figure out sort of the environmental aspects of it. Are you, do you think that there could be a good results of this? Because maybe there, this now paved the way for at least a, a free deal, a, a free trade deal between, uh, between the EU and, and the Mercosur member countries? I think politicians in, in the EU, they, they do like Lula much more, but I think they don't know much about his policies and they are a little bit misled in this that sense because one of the things that have stopped the process of integration with EU and the Mercosur, Mercosur is because of intellectual property, for example. And the party of Lula, which is the Workers' Party, was one of the most important parties in voting in favor to end intellectual property during the COVID pandemic and, and ending that for vaccines, which would have a huge blow into companies and pharmaceuticals in Europe. So, I mean, they do like the name better, but I, I don't quite think that they do understand everything that is behind this socialist plan uh, that Lula is trying to put in Brazil. So uh, I'm skeptical about the, the more deepening to the relations of trade agreements with Europe now. That is very interesting, and we'll see how that will develop uh, as as the term now uh, uh, begins and the transition of power in, in Brazil is taking place. Uh, thank you so much, Fabio, for your insights. We really appreciate it, especially those that maybe didn't follow the election as closely as, as you certainly have. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. Always a pleasure. Next up, we have the European Emissions Trading System, ETS, which, uh, according to some, should apply also to a flight leaving the uh, the European area. Uh, I might have mistakenly said in the intro that this was the Commission's push. It's actually the European Parliament's push that uh, these uh, flights, which are currently fall onto the ETS system for intra-European flights, should now also apply for uh, flying uh, further. Uh, so, for instance, if you take a flight from Paris to New York, uh, the ETS system should also apply. Now, what is the ETS system? A uh, quick reminder, this is essentially the cap-and-trade approach of uh, the European Union. It's still actually the largest cap-and-trade system. So, essentially, um, uh, governments... Uh, sell licenses or, and g give a few licenses, but also sell licenses to uh, for, for, for emitting uh, carbon dioxide emissions to uh, individual companies, and they have to pay for those. Uh, they can also buy uh, emissions from other companies if they have uh, been more efficient. So essentially, there's sort of an economic incentive to reducing pollution and uh, reducing carbon dioxide emissions. Um, that system, of course, uh, means that uh, consumers end up paying uh, for these emissions because obviously, I mean, I mean, who in a company is going to pay for it if it's not consumers, workers, or shareholders? And um, and so it seems that the Commission is 
uh, still adhering to the idea that it should only be for intra-European flights. Um, quote, now more than ever, the commission is profoundly attached to implementing Corsia in Europe, said uh, Philip Cornelis, the commission's director for aviation, uh, who has revived calls for the EU's cap and trade emissions trading system to apply to intra-European flights only, despite the push by members of the European Parliament. Um, and so uh, this is quite interesting because he gave MEPs on the, the Transport Committee an update on Thursday on the recent ICAO assembly in Montreal, where representatives from more than 150 countries met to discuss the UN's Corsia offsetting program, among other things. This is essentially the idea of implementing on a world stage the rules that already exists in certain jurisdictions, especially the European Union. Um, of course, uh, not everybody uh, is aboard. A Green MEP, Kieran Cuffey, uh, for example, said any scheme that relies largely on offsetting doesn't go far enough. He called Corsia the modern-day equivalent of purchasing medieval indulgences by the Catholic Church and said that while it might make the applicant feel better about their action, it does not address the fundamental point. Always wondering what exactly the fundamental point is supposed to be, because how are you getting from Paris to New York unless you are flying? And how much exactly are we willing to charge people for that privilege on top of what the airline uh, would need to charge to run a profit? And this is, again, one of those things where we ultimately get back to the idea of how much ought people be allowed to fly. And I think that's a very dangerous conversation because then we start prescribing rights and privileges to different people and we're essentially rationing something that doesn't need to be rationed and then last but not least we have Jarl Osowski a deputy managing director at the consumer choice center to talk to us about the uber files uh, the recent uh, hearing in the European parliament and what exactly uber means for consumers so we are here with Jarl Osowski, Deputy Director at the Consumer Choice Center and a co-host of Consumer Choice Radio, which you should check out on all the podcast platforms if you want. Um, and of course, on the radio stations that uh, Jarl will be telling us about uh, later for those uh, listeners uh, located in the United States or Canada. Um, but first off, let's talk about the Uber files. Uh, so the Uber files, for those of you who don't know, uh, these are documents uh, that have uh, uh, been revealed by a whistleblower who used to work inside Uber, who claims that the company has very aggressive lobbying techniques in order to get favors from European government being allowed to operate, but also to be allowed operated more smoothly. The question of Uber has been uh, at the forefront of legislation uh, on the level of the European Commission, which tries to uh, uh, create consistent uh, rules on platform work what is considered platform work so how exactly are those people employed are they freelancers this, these entire questions are being addressed at an eu level with a directive that will eventually go into effect um, that at least is the ambition of the european union there was a hearing recently in the european parliament and i'll be also uh, um, uh, playing some clips where we can sort of listen into what uh, the, uh, the what the conversation was in the European Parliament. Very important point for us on the agenda. Uh, it's a hearing on Uber files, lobbying and workers' rights. The aim of the hearing, just to be very precise, is to give an overview of the situation of Uber drivers in Europe and show to what extent through Uber's lobbying activities their workers' rights have been affected across Europe within the scope of existing labour and social rights. Empowering and protecting people and making inclusive growth a reality in Europe is at the heart of our committee's work and preoccupation, especially now in the context of rising cost of living and accelerated green and digital transition. Today I'm here to call on the European Parliament to defend the interests of drivers 
and platform workers everywhere. I hope that my testimony today will help you to better understand why giving disproportionate power in legislation to huge tech platforms risks shattering the social justice that this body fought very hard to establish and defend. Democracy is about protecting the powerless from the powerless, from the powerful. Then I believe, respectfully, it is time to rebalance the scales in this legislative debate. We weaponized our drivers and we weaponized our customers. They were ours to use in the service of the mission. Governments and politicians just needed to get out of the way. Our driving mantra was do whatever it takes. Ladies and gentlemen, even in those days, we had disproportionate power. I would encourage the members of this committee to ask for the source data on which such claims are based. I know better than anyone how easy it is to produce and manipulate uh, such, such data that supports your messaging. Yao, uh, the reaction on this issue in Europe has been outrage, outrage at Uber for lobbying uh, to keep their business model. Um, should we be outraged at all? Rather than outrage, I think we should be impressed. Impressed that such a young company was able to take its model and apply it to so many disparate, different, changing political models and provide value for consumers. I think that is the, the, really the thing to look at in awe because anyone who's ever launched a company or followed the launch of a company knows that usually you don't have this huge expansionary move uh, in just a few years. This is something that normally takes decades and decades. Uh, but with Uber, we saw it very, very quickly. And as soon as Uber was coming, there were plenty of copycats and other companies that uh, perhaps did things better. And they were able to provide their value to consumers and consumers used them and were very happy. So I think the framing is obviously bad, obviously not one that thinks about the people who use these services, which I assume is practically everyone who's writing stories on this, oddly enough. Uh, but I do think the framing is completely wrong. And I think it's a, it's a good time to sit back and, and analyze exactly the, the value that has been provided to uh, probably hundreds of thousands or millions of people on this point who've used uh, a lot of these apps related to ride-hailing services. Uh, I agree that uh, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, it's a bit like the story of like fifty thousand planes landed safely today. If we if we were to take into account, and sometimes hard to know uh, how many restaurants have been uh, saved uh, from bankruptcy by virtue of having delivery services available to them. How many drunk drivers did not crash because they had availability of ride-hailing in their area at a price that they were willing to pay? Um, sort of the benefits are sometimes hard to. Uh, established, but we know there aren't those benefits, and the, the services are popular with consumers. I remember initially when when Uber entered France, uh, there was the conversation on should it be banned completely from the start. It didn't happen, and by a point, by the point that regulation became realistic, the service had already been so popular with consumers that it wasn't really possible to ban it outright. Now the question on the Uber files is sort of the cozying up to politicians to get. Uh, to get a different treatment. Um, and there, to me, what has been a bit strange in the conversation is that none of the things I've read were particularly new. It wasn't that uh, Uber was giving uh, 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 mountains of cash to politicians. It was essentially just networking to get access to the people that make rules about them. And how is that particularly new in the sphere of public affairs? Yeah, I don't think it's new. It's a very uh, US-style 
of practicing government and public affairs. It's a, it's a very sort of, you know, you have to get present in the conversation. You know, you don't just wait for the rules to be written about you. You try to engage as quickly as possible. And I think this is uh, particularly with the Uber files and the way that everything has been framed, whether it be by The Guardian or the International Consortium of Journalists, uh, their sort of take on it, and they have a, a globe or they have a, a world map on uh, one of the initial articles um, that goes through this, and it, it kind of shows through the years how many countries Uber is expanding to in this kind of like big black blob taking over the planet of consumer choice and, you know, app-ready uh, rides. I, I think what, what they've done here is, and forgive the term, but they sort of have, have they've criminalized petitioning the government and lobbying. And I think the way that they frame it as if it's some terrible thing to reach out to lawmakers to educate them on a new technological advance, how the rules apply, don't apply, should apply. I mean, that's normal. Every single industry, if they're smart, does this. Those who don't do it at their peril. And especially when we're talking about, think of the, any of the other big tech companies, if we think of Meta, if we think of Spotify, to use a European example, you know, there's a great uh, Netflix series now, The Playlist, that's all about the Spotify story. And they've had to do exactly the same thing. You have to talk to the stakeholders. You have to talk to, in Spotify's case, it's the music executives. You have to talk to the radio stations. You have to talk to uh, the government and the copyright people. And there's all these different levels that you have to engage with. I think that just more reveals the complex nature of our regulatory regimes more than it, it points to any... Uh, sort of nefarious campaign to give people rides that they can plug in on their phone. I think that, that's what really we have to think about at the end of the day is we're talking about an app that consumers use to get from point A to point B, do so in an efficient manner. Taxis have not been able to deliver with the new innovations in technology. This company just so happened to do so. And the taxi companies are replicating sort of uh, some of the aspects of it by also introducing apps uh, for people to use. So there's, there's sort of a trend-setting aspect to that. But as to what you've mentioned now, now, Yal, you are many things uh, uh, at the same time. You're both American and European and Canadian, all these things at the same time. Do you think that there is an anti-Americanism approach to it? If this was a European company, would we have the same conversation? I mean, if this was a European company, you'd have you know, the competition ministers, you'd have Kiefer Hofstadt, you'd have the entire upper echelon of uh, the European Commission that would be applauding, um, that probably would be setting these, meeting ups, uh, these meetings up. They would be, uh, you know, sending over contact deals for their compatriots or colleagues in different countries and regulatory systems. I think we'd have that. So, you know, does the anti-Americanist play into it? Yes, unfortunately. Uh, we saw this recently with uh, Thierry Barton, uh, when uh, Twitter uh, was just taken over by Elon Musk, which I know you've talking about, you've talked about, Bill, and uh, the response there, you know, for for the EU, for everyone to see in the world is, hey, 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 you're going to have to comply with our rules, there, Elon. This is the message that many European legislators want to set: is that, you know, we're going to have not innovation but regulation. That's how we start out at the gate. And I think had it been a European company, an Italian company, a Spanish company, it would be very different. The narrative would be different. There wouldn't be this nebulous, nefarious narrative. And there wouldn't be um, a lot of these you know, reports that have come out and articles and Guardian spreads. You know, they just wouldn't be framed this way. I think it would be seen in a, in a very positive light and, and as a success story, which, by the way, it has been seen, as uh, a lot of the reporting shows us, by many American officials that they saw that this is innovation in the 21st century. 
So why is this something bad? Why is this something that we should be worried about? Exactly. And, and sort of the, the, the success story is also in the user rates. And, and I think that's also part of the issue is that the people who use the services are not necessarily the ones speaking up for it. I mean, essentially, their, their usage speaks for the popularity of the service, but those are not the citizens that necessarily would, you know, advocate for that to exist. I think the outrage would come about if those services disappear. I mean, I'm from a country that doesn't have any ride sharing services or delivery services in that sense whatsoever. And as a result of that, you know, we have high drunk driving rates. It is, it's a terrible way to get out of the city. And the government, in a sense, is running after the problem by trying to provide public transport services that allow people to get from A to B, um, which are, of course, not perfect. And especially if you have a very rural country, that, that becomes very difficult. So the, the, the these companies are providing a service um, for, for people, but also for sort of the, the government aims of reducing sort of the accident rate of people using their car when they're impaired. I think that that's a very important part of it. Also, you know, uh, uh, now with services coming up where children uh, can, can can use them safely through where, where parents have the abil ability of checking in the app uh, where exactly they're going. I think sort of these services where the taxi industry, because they were sitting on such a comfortable monopoly, were just not providing and were only being used by people who had expense reports by their companies and they could use taxis, but the common man had no availability of, of these services. So it, it, it's in that sense a great success story. It's also going to affect, though, European companies as well. If you look at the French company Heach or Estonian Bolt, um, whatever rules will be made about Uber will also apply to those European companies. And, um, well, the question is, do you think that we will still have ride-sharing services by the time the European Commission has, has made its rules? I think that's hard to say. If we look at many of the constituent countries or member states, uh, they've had their own ways of regulating this sort of at the national level. And oftentimes it was through pure negotiation, arbitrage. And I think that's actually been to the detriment of consumers. We've seen a lot of fixed rate pricing. Um, so sort of the innovative pricing model that Uber has delivered, and now it's uh, concurrence, so all of his competitors as well. Uh, that has kind of gone in many instances. That's specifically the case in Vienna, and I know in some German uh, parts as well. So I'm not sure if we're still going to have it. You know, I think, unfortunately, the uh, lobbying prowess of, of Uber sure is uh, discounted or, you know, made to be so nebulous. Uh, well, you know, Labor unions and uh, taxi unions and taxi drivers are, are not too, uh, they're not slouches themselves. They are also fairly active, fairly well-funded. Um, they have traditional political relationships, which I think is something that we have to iterate here. You know, these are all brand new relationships that were made by uh, many of the Uber executives or those who are lobbying on their behalf. So I, I don't see, you know, all of this uh, using text messages to try to reach out and get a meeting here and there. Um, I think that's just the way that you work in, in a new system. If, if we're looking at the taxi uh, lobby in a particular country, let's imagine the Netherlands or let's imagine in, in Belgium, uh, there, you know, it's an easy phone call. And they can also say, hey, we're also going to tell our union members not to vote for you if you don't, uh, you know, try to put the axe to Uber or any of these other companies. So I think that that's sort of the problem that it presents a, a main reason why consumers have to be active, they have to be engaged, and they have to voice their preferences. Now, we do it every day through the market, through the things that we buy, where we spend our money, but oftentimes it's also in holding government accountable. You know, government is not there to pick the winners and the losers. That's what we are, as the consumers are there to do. We have to make sure that governments have fair, transparent laws 
and rules that everyone can follow. Uh, but a lot of this just seems like regulating after the fact and, and seems more punitive. And unfortunately, I don't know what the future of ride sharing will be. Um, pretty certain we're not going to have the AI future of uh, the car showing up at our at our apartment, you know, with no driver and everything on, on computers. I think it's still going to take a long time if we look at the European rules. Yeah, we have about uh, we have about three uh, minutes left here. So I had one more one more thing that I wanted to address. And I think this, this speaks to the conversation, sort of the, the history of the regulatory state. And in, in a way, uh, Gutenberg's printing press was probably not very appreciated by the secretaries that were initially uh, uh, writing these by hands or the monasteries back in the, what are we talking about, the 15th century there. Uh, that's where technological innovation was probably not favored by everyone. I think even uh, Gutenberg's printing press was considered witchcraft by some of the people trying to prevent it. But ultimately, it imposed itself because people just really liked the service. I think now with the regulatory state being so massive, there is sort of a there's sort of a, 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 a there, there's the acceptance that we might go back on sort of on some of these innovations that you know we maybe we should have this was just a mistake. It was sort of a blurb in 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 time. Maybe it was just ten years where we could. I mean, often European politicians refer to some of the wild, the, the regulatory wild west is what they often call it. Um, is uh, I, I, I guess this is this is a bit of a pervasive uh, problem with the regulatory state is that this idea of, you know, where we mix in the precautionary principle and protections where we use the word protection a bit liberally. Um, is this going to be um, applied as well to more new technologies? I mean, what, what what can we expect to happen here? Is this always going to be a battle of new versus old? Yeah, I think you're always going to have that to some extent. And, you know, we have to think we're, we're right now we're in a state of ignorance about the future. So if we just imagine everything that's happening with AR and VR, I'm pretty sure it's a European country or uh, some minister that's going to have the first law to ban you know, AR glasses or goggles out in public, you know, there'll be some kind of rule that's thought up and that will be seen as the innovative thing rather than the AR goggles themselves. And I think why I'm not too worried about that is because a lot of people are more, they're more awoken to this. And we as consumers have a funny way of through entrepreneurial seeking, creative seeking to find ways around this stuff if need be. Um, you mentioned Heech. There's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer services that people use. Um, I just I think of the United States. There's there are vans that go all around the city of New York, one of the largest cities in the world. There are vans that go around and ping certain locations, and they pick up you know mostly Chinese people, mostly uh, Asian people from a, a particular cohort, and they have this sort of decentralized network of ride hailing that's done totally peer-to-peer, -peer, no companies. And that's because there was demand. There was demand for uh, Chinese language speaking drivers, directions, certain areas. And that evolved without a company and the technology is there. And I think that's exactly what we're going to see going forward is if it's not going to work through the, the centralized institutions, if it won't pass muster there in Brussels or in Strasbourg, then perhaps it'll just have to be done in another way. And there's going to have to be uh, some kind of response in the market because there's always consumer demand. And I think because we've tasted this level of freedom, I think we, we would be very hard pressed to relinquish it. So if it's not going to come from an official company like Uber or Bolt or any of the other competitors, I am very hopeful in the entrepreneurial spirit of fellow Europeans who will find ways to go around it because look, this is something that has bettered humanity. And I think that is something that we should be championing at the end of the day optimistic outlook there. Consumers always find a way. Thanks, Seattle, for taking the time today. Thank you very much, Bill. All the best.
And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Yael Osowski on Twitter at Yael OSS. And make sure to listen in to Consumer Choice Radio on all the podcast platforms or actually on the radio station if you're within reach. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Bill Wirtz. And yeah, see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody else. Pressure. You've only